The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to The Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Molly Jean Bennett. On this week's show, we have an interview with the three extraordinary women behind the organization Right to Health. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We have a full studio here today. Uh, three women who are doing very important work with an organization called Right to Health. Leslie Gregory is the founder and executive director. We just we just heard Stevie Wonder, and uh, she was just saying uh, before the break that that song is important and or it has a relevance to the work you're doing. Can how about let's start with that. Uh, sure. I think the important thing that Stevie Wonder is saying here is that we have a paucity of love in our world. And I think that's a huge contributor to the problem of racism's impact on health. Uh, people are less healthy, and 57% of respondents admitted that since the election, they're feeling an increase in stress. And certainly, a part of it can be attributed to change. We're humans. Change can be difficult. But I think Digging deeper, we're seeing that the marginalization and polarization of our country as a result of the election is what's driving a lot of this additional stress. We know that kind of stress can lead to worse chronic disease problems as we age. And I think that's also happening in our children, which is a big focus uh, for our work. So, Leslie, I want to talk a little bit about what Right to Health does and, and, then, and, and wrapped into that is the why you're doing what you do. Preventative health management um, with a specific demographic. Is that correct? A specific 
plural demographics. Okay. So a lot of our target is children. We know that when you're a child and you experience adverse events, whether that's a parent being taken out of the home prematurely or being taught something that goes against your nature as a child, as a child, we're tribal. We look to others to tell us how we're doing. When you're a child and you have an adverse event like that, you're being trained to other other people, to marginalize other people, then that is an adverse childhood event. You're more likely to have a chronic disease as you age. You're more likely to have incongruency and confusion in your world as you grow up. And this leads to chronic disease, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, which all happen to be epidemics right now. Let's see, could there be a correlation? So my question is, how does racism affect the health of all people, the system of racism, not just somebody's bad words to another child, calling them a bad name. I'm talking about the system of racism. How does this harm the health of our population? And it's very clear that it, it does. I mean, in, in some ways, what you're saying sounds like a PhD thesis. However, this is this is uh, in real action. This is not an academic concern for you. This is something that you are bringing to uh, people of Portland and the Portland area. Correct. It's also a national campaign. So I think that's the important piece of it is it's a national problem with regional differences. And that's why it should be a national campaign. And that's why our national public health authority, the CDC, should be doing this job. So, so right to health. Um, I mean, is it a campaign, or is it is there a clinic that people go into? Is there explain how you exist in in, in terms of delivery of services? I'd love to explain that to you. I'm not sure myself. How okay, we <laughs> exist. I think that's really so. While we do not have a physical address right now, the primary action is an online campaign. However. As a nonprofit company, we do offer services to educate and manage the effect of racism on communities, workers. So we train, for instance, companies to be more inclusive and safe, physically health-centered safe, uh, as employees so that we come to a work environment that feels safe for us and inclusive. Uh, that's going to reduce the health impact of racism in the workplace which we know can be a very stressful place. If you come to work every day, 40 hours a week, and feel unsafe there, then that's going to increase your risk for chronic disease and insurance costs go up, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, without universal health care, that's a big issue. I'm going to turn to Tina Semko, who's the Vice President of Operation for Right to Health, and talk a little bit about how do people find you or find Right to Health, or, or do you find them? Ah, well, we do a lot of grassroots um, community events. So how we like to make a presence and have done that before is actually coming out to community events, taking blood pressure, having conversations, engaging the community and talking to them about some of their real personal experiences. Because what we as a nonprofit have found out, has found out is that when we engage with the community and we're able to talk to people, share their stories, and listen to them, we actually learn more about what kind of work we need to be doing for the community and services that we can provide to them. 
So we've done events where um, in East Portland, we have what's called a community care fest. It's a new uh, baby event, but it's going on its third year. And we go out, we do blood pressure, Leslie sits down, consults with them with a disclaimer, of course, that they should always seek uh, care from their provider, but really sitting down and engaging with folks and listening to them and saying, wait a minute, the story that you're sharing with me, did you know it really has this negative impact on your health? And these are the things that you can do right now to mitigate those health effects. Because sometimes when we're in situations that we cannot control, we can at least learn how to control how we react to it, which those are the things that we want to teach the community and go out there and be able to teach and consult to employers and nonprofits and for-profits and everybody, city councils, governments, anybody that we can get our hands and our paws on <laughs> is our goal. And and uh, how, when did this start? When when did these uh, outreach or these, you said it's a baby event, um, when, when did uh, Right to Health start going out into the community like this? So this is the third year that they've had the event. So we went out about two years ago, mm -hmm. 2015, I believe mm -hmm. it was. And uh, that was um, one that an event I helped put together. Um, and then, as you know, it's quite hard to reach out to nonprofits and for-profits to donate their time. But as an event out in East Portland, which is quite gentrified, uh, quite diverse with 88 different languages, we were able to pull it together. Uh, this is the third year that the team's done it. They were able to get um, different organizations out to not just do blood pressures and not just engage the children in the community, but even teach folks did you know that your voice matters? Voting, your health, your community. You can get on boards of different nonprofits. You can have a voice in the city council. And it's unfortunate that still a lot of uh, city governments and city officials and uh, city departments are missing from these conversations. And that's what Right to Health really wants to aim to mitigate. And I want, I want to talk about that because we hear so much about health care on the federal level. What could city council do if you had Mayor Ted Wheeler's ear for two minutes? <laughs> uh, and we're going to turn to Leslie Gregory, the founder for Right to Health. If you had, had uh, Mayor Wheeler's ear for two minutes, what would you tell him that the city can do for health care? So, uh, well, first of all, I think there are some very exquisite differences in the way we speak about these things. So I think one of the things is the city could do a great deal about health. Okay, I think a lot of the issue around health care is finance. So I think we need to be real clear. What we're talking about is health. Now, if we had universal health care, I believe that would be a huge step toward demarginalization of populations because everyone would have a more even playing field. At this point, when you have profit involved in medicine, you're going to have people on the bottom. You're going to have people on the top. Universal health care would assure that everyone would at least start with the basic needs met. That would reduce chronic disease dramatically. Okay, The stress of being able to afford medical care uh, would be reduced. And that, again, these are the chronic stressors that we know lead to hypertension, heart disease, et cetera. So I think that's a huge piece is to learn to more accurately discuss these issues uh, because for years uh, people were saying we're talking about health care reform. No, we're not. We're talking about health care finance reform. So I think those are that's a really big important piece. But my other first recommendation I think to the mayor would be the city of Portland needs to proclaim that racism is a threat to public health, period. Until we do that, 
We're never going to hit the real issue here. And as long as we keep talking about who is or isn't racist on an individual basis, then we are missing a huge piece of all-cause mortality and morbidity reduction in our nation. And I think Portland has a great opportunity to be the first to do that. Why? Because we have the history. We can see the legacy of racism in this country, in this city. And it's very different uh, from the rest of the country, but because it is so blatant and it was so obviously legislated, then we could be the banner. You know, we could be the flagship of a change that could sweep across this country and save billions uh, of dollars. I think something else that really concerns me is uh, we have a new head of CDC. My concern is that the new administration has plans to cut millions from that budget at a time when we are still not deciding on what we're going to do about the health care finance in this country. I, I think... A person looking here from the outside must be shaking and scratching their head. What? So I think those are the big issues that I would would raise. I want to go back. Just uh, say the statement again that racism is a is a is a threat to public health. Racism is a threat to public health. I mean that that that's um. I mean it's it's a sentence that you can can say and 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 sort of just go past. But when you really start to dig into it, like you said, there's a lot of history that's involved in it. There's there's uh legislative there's lifestyle there's there's a lot that is in that statement so let's let's try to unpack it a little bit more i want to take a song break and then we're going to come back and talk about that a little bit more um we have a michael jackson song queued up yeah uh you want to introduce us and uh <laughs> leslie tell us why 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 are we listening to this song um well i think probably what happened i wasn't there clearly but what we can see looking back is uh, a lie was told from the very beginning uh, about who matters and who doesn't. And it blew up and became the truth in some bizarre way. And then it was used to make incredibly wealthy a few people, and the rest of the people were discounted. And I think that's what Michael is saying here, is that they, this ubiquitous they, don't care about us. And I think we need to start saying it's CDC's job to care about us, and we're pushing back. Let's take a listen.
That was, of course, Michael Jackson. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I am talking to three women who run Right to Health, which is a health preventative health management organization in Portland, uh, which is uh, both providing health services and providing information and also looking to uh, change the trends and change the tone of the conversation about health management. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yes. Because you guys are doing a lot. I mean, I think it, if, if I were walking through the park and, and you had uh, one of your health fairs and I saw somebody taking blood pressure, it would look like somebody taking blood pressure. But there's more going on. You're trying to, like you said, start a dialogue and have people talk about why are certain health issues, uh, why, how is that wrapped up with uh, race issues? That's right. Uh, and that's that is a difficult conversation it seems for Portland to have Portland I think when it focuses on race it looks at housing it looks at police issues but health doesn't necessarily come up in that way Portland is very much like the rest of the country so what reception do you have when people hear that do they feel like oh here's somebody that's that's banging on her drum or do you get a receptive audience you know once we get into like the second or third sentence about it. People go, oh, my God, that's so true. But it it is very difficult to shift such a dominant paradigm from who is or isn't, what is or isn't racist, that you forget the definition of racism is systemic. Okay, we can talk about who is or isn't prejudiced against another person. We're not talking about that. We are talking about a system of marginalization, a system of these lives matter more than these. It's a system whereby a few people in this country became incredibly powerful and wealthy, and a vast majority of us are not. And it's very simply a system that has led to an incredible disparity in healthcare, in health outcomes. All we're saying is we can't afford this anymore neither by the lives of people who any one of whom might have the cure for cancer. How can we omit these souls? And we cannot afford these outrageous medical expenses either because we know $2.4 billion per section of the country is wasted in ERs for chronic disease management that could be handled in primary care. So when when was your aha? Was there an aha moment where, where where you decided, Leslie, that that this is what you needed to to start up? You 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 are a physician, PA, a PA, and you are you're seeing patients and you're doing your job. And did you just one day wake up and be like, I have a solution for a bigger problem here? Uh, how how did the light bulb go on? Was it a switch or was it a dimmer? How how did it come on? Well, I guess that's kind of silly, actually. Uh, I'm a single mom, mm -hmm. have been for a long time, practically and literally. Um, one day in 2006, I was away at a conference, educational conference, and I was alone in a hotel room. And being alone and in silence was the first time for me in many years. So I just sat on a hotel bedroom bed with my laptop and realized that something has to change. I have two biracial children and I can't tolerate it anymore. I, I felt so angry 
um, to think that my children would be raised in this soup of hate and that their lives would be shortened. And so I got on my computer. I looked up an attorney's firm that specialized in nonprofits. I hit him up and said, look, what's it going to take for you to set this up? And I tried to think of a name that would have several different meanings. And so the word right has so many different meanings that I, I thought of that and then wrote it up into a proposal, sent it to the attorney. I actually had a very generous friend donate the money for the paperwork and the legal fees and the, you know, sort of thing. Um, but that was 2006. And it, since then, I've uh, I've done those uh, events. Uh, there was uh, I've done probably Good in the Hood, Juneteenth, uh, those sorts of things. But I think the shift for me came from just blood pressure, heart disease in people of color uh, to begin to realize that heart disease is much more related to that chronic stress, that chronic never relaxed, the world in which we feel like we're constantly driving in a car with the police in the rearview mirror. You just never quite ever relax completely. Uh, this kind of sort of latent dis-ease leads to the chronic diseases we're seeing now. And it's not just in people of color. This is the other thing that I think is so critically important. Um, the other day I was watching the Philando Castile video, which I really tried to avoid watching, and I would urge people to limit this sort of trauma. Uh, but I was watching it, and I saw it from a different perspective this time when I looked at this white cop, likely in Kevlar, armed to the teeth, walking up to a car with a man, his wife and children in the car. This man was terrified. You could hear it in his voice. This white armed Kevlar cop walks up to a car with three black, a, a black family. And you could hear it in his voice. He was terrified. What I'm saying is racism is harming everyone. Everyone. And the misconception in this country that it's just associated with health disparities for people of color is ridiculous. Yes, it is absolutely inappropriate that these health disparities exist, but they exist because it's harming everyone. And I think that's so important to put across because that's why it's a public health problem. It's not a mental health problem. It's not a social problem. It is a public health problem. And I think that leads to the other issue, which is the CDC has four criteria for what constitutes a public health. This is not just some person sitting over here going, gee, seems like a public health problem. No, there are four criteria. They're all met. I want to know, and this is just a very simple question to me, how do you choose, CDC, which of the criteria you decide to adhere to? How do you ignore a mandate like this? So your right to health is, is looking to uh, push back an enormous problem with decades, centuries of, of, of history uh, and momentum. That's a big task, task to do. Are, are there issues uh, that you're looking at that there have been success outside of healthcare that you can look as a blueprint for doing the work that you're doing? Uh, I think we've seen many. The Poor People's Campaign. Uh, Dr. Um, Reverend Barber has some pushback in terms of voting reform. So yes, we've seen this, and a lot of it is grassroots. The, the, but I think the important piece that we're missing is until we unite these disparate groups in a cry that speaks to each of the groups, we don't get much traction. 
So I think, yes, we've seen, uh, irrespective of race, religion, language, socioeconomic status, education, et cetera, when we get these voices united, there is nothing that we cannot change. And I think that's the piece. Yes, we do have uh, several. However, and I, I think this is critically important to, to point out, we hear so much decrying the absence of the black leadership in this country. Where, where are the black leaders? Where are they? Well, uh, I think we know. I think there was a quiet, peaceful, gentle man trying to do his job as a dad who's dead now because he was sitting in a car. So I think that's what happens to our black leaders. Look at Dr. King, okay? So I think the issue is until we take the focus off individual uh, black leaders, because we know that that has a very high mortality rate in this country, and spread that leadership out to grassroots. And quite frankly, I think we need to have a much stronger white voice uh, in this issue, uh, and truly active white voice, then that's going to be another big problem. So I think, yes, we've seen some tremendous progress made, but it's when the non-marginalized population is included in the fight. Uh, the same with HIV. Leslie Gregory is the executive director and founder for Right to Health. We are also in the studio with uh, Tina Semko, who's the vice president of operation, and Christy LaFollet, who is the director of development and marketing. Christy, I'm going to turn to you for a bit. Um, so this is an all-volunteer organization. Is that correct? For now it is, yes. And and so as director of development, um, where where does the funding come from? Well, why don't I take a, a step back and just give a little history on how I came into the getting to know Leslie and Tina and Right to Health. Absolutely. Um, so my family and I moved up to Port Portland about two and a half years ago. Californagonian, I think that's what we're called now. <laughs> um, I know. And a groan goes across the city. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, um, I came up here, I needed a doctor, a new doctor. That's essentially how I met Leslie. Um, we immediately connected. We share a lot in common in terms of uh, personal values, uh, just understanding and knowing that there's a huge gap as, as Leslie and Tina have, uh, have talked about earlier. Um, I, I think for me, um, I come from a technology background, um, 25 years in digital, uh, digital work. Um, and clearly for me coming up to Portland, one of the changes for me and my family was to just be in a place that embraced more kind of the day-to-day -day human interaction, creativity, um, not driving so fast, and just kind of getting myself off the wheel for a while. And so one of the things that I think Right to Health is, and what we've kind of alluded to here, but we're really taking a pivot in the, the strategy of our organization is to go more directly to various organizations, whether it be a civic group, whether it be a corporation, whether it be another foundation nonprofit, and say, look, we know that you as adults, um, regardless of your professional backgrounds, to some degree, have some sort of childhood experience trauma that is probably likely not being met in those equity inclusion trainings. Not to say that what's going out, um, what's happening out there is not valuable because there are a ton of organizations like CEI here in Portland is doing a fantastic job, for example, getting into um, these different organizations and really having um, people commit long-term, not just do a two-day workshop, but really long-term long training 
to unpack implicit bias and all of these other things. But I think what we provide as a unique value and consequently what how as we're seeing our work become more of a consulting consulting service side is to say, look, you know, their equity inclusion training taking this time is important, but also really understanding yourself first and how your personal experience, whether you're white, black, Latino, you know, gender, whatever, um, that you're really identifying where you where you stand as a person and what your what your trauma is essentially that you're bringing bringing into your workplace and into your profession your per, your personal life, and I think once we kind of use that methodology and wrap that around the in, the equity inclusion work, then you know everybody has a win win. So I, I I know that you said that this is systemic change and you're you're going into companies and um, helping people with lifestyle and attitude changes. Uh, and this is not a two-day seminar that you're doing, but it's it's something bigger. That said, yes, I'm going to see if you can do a two-minute seminar right now for our <laughs> listeners. Are there are there a couple pointers, uh, common issues that people may not recognize that that how they are behaving for implicitly for racism or causing stress at their workplace for other people that lead to health issues? Well, first of all, above all else, and Leslie speaks a lot about this, is we start with no shame and blame. That's above all else. That's where everybody needs to start. Um, and and what, tell, tell me what that means. Leslie? So one of the things that's most difficult about talking about race is as soon as you say that word, typically, and, and again, this is a generalization, so I don't want anyone to think, oh, I'm not like that. I don't do that. Uh, as soon as you say the word racism... For typically for people who are marginalized by it, there's an anger sort of flare up. And yeah, I get it. That's wrong. So when we what we want to do is at that moment, take that deep breath, relax and go, okay, yeah, we're talking about it in this moment. It's going to be triggering. We get that. Now, people who are not marginalized or don't perceive themselves as such will also have a defensive reflex saying, I'm not like that. That's not me. I don't do that. So by taking both the shame and the blame out of it, raising awareness for each individual in that moment, because the word is so triggering now, it's almost like the N-word, doesn't matter. If you're speaking, as soon as you do, there's going to be this visceral response. What does visceral mean? It means internal. Visceral organs are the one closest to the heart. Those are big things. It's primal. And so this reflex comes without you even thinking about it. And since you're not even thinking about it, the body's responding without your even thinking about it. My point is, think about it. Think about it. Understand that even a slight elevation in blood pressure, heart rate, these things have physical effects. And so, like I said, it's like driving around with that cop car in your rearview mirror all the time. Yeah, the lights go on for a minute because somebody says racism. And that raises it all up. We're just trying to say it's a system it's a soup. Doesn't matter whether you're a carrot, a potato, or a piece of beef. You're in the soup, and the broth is racism. And it's hot in here, and you're going to have issues. And we're just saying it's related to your health on a daily basis. You see, diabetes doesn't happen in a moment. Not, you know, one day you're not, the next day you're No, it's years and years of eating a little too much, exercising a little too little, you get a little family history involved, you get a little bit of, you know, it's a, it's a conglomeration, it's a constellation. What we're saying is racism contributes in the same way to chronic disease 
that a little bit of sugar every day, a little too little exercise contributes to diabetes. My point is this. It is CDC's job to pan out, take that big picture approach for our nation. And they have those criteria. We're just saying, do your job. And it's a very simple matter. I mean, it sounds so convoluted and complex, but at the end of the day, someone told a lie long time ago. It became the truth. We're all now swimming in this lie and it's affecting our health. We have public institutions that are paid specifically and funded specifically to prevent and control disease. I'm saying do the job. And until you do, nonprofits like us are going to have to pick up that banner. And here's the point. Every single person in your listening audience is being affected by this right now. So we, we stepped a little bit away from, from the uh, the two-minute seminar. Oops, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm, gonna go, I, I'm gonna go back to it in a second, but on the note, uh, Leslie, that you were just talking about, how unique is Right to Health? Are there other organizations in the country that are, that are doing similar work, uh, whether academically uh, or in companies or legislatively? How, how unique is it? Earlier, you had mentioned that you want Portland to be uh, an example of, of how uh, uh, things can be done right and how the, the tone can change. Mm-hmm. Um, who else is doing this work? Well, we have people, pockets of people doing parts of the work. So I mentioned Reverend Barber. He's working to change voter registration so people can be more empowered politically. We have enormous numbers of people doing work in pockets and part of the problem. Uh, For instance, Trevor Noah is brilliant talking about how uh, racism in this country is very different from that in his home. Uh, We have people doing work on individual things like uh, NAACP is trying to do a few things. And so we have pockets of people doing part of the issue. And it's amazing how many people are speaking about this tangentially as a health issue. So I think that's another thing. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, brilliant woman, uh, speaks about America being born with a birth defect called slavery. And I think so we're hearing people make these sort of tangential remarks about health. Uh, but no one is actually calling the specific and more global issue itself. So I think that's really what's different about Right to Health. We're bringing all this together. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about education. That impacts health. And I would also add, too, um, and especially coming from California, uh, Jane Stevens and uh, all those involved with um, adverse childhood experiences, Nadine Burke-Harris, they're doing and have been doing amazing work, um, working mostly with children um, through education and and other, um, you know, kid-involved venues. Venues, yeah. But... What's what's really interesting is again, it a lot of that work is is what is trauma informed care, mm-hmm. and so um, what we do in and um, talking about uh, not only at a national level but a, a local level, um, is really try to um, open people's minds to the fact that you know trauma informed um, care within yourself, racism and race is such a huge part of our culture and society, and to Leslie's point, and that for myself as a white woman. Um, you know, white people really need to start talking more openly and addressing this more openly. And Portland has a lot of amazing people here here that are already having conversations, but we really need to dig deeper. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. This is uh, both my, my dad and my sister are both allergists and asthma doctors. 
And about 15 years ago, my dad started a study on, on there's higher rates of asthma in the inner Absolutely. city. And he was working with the NIH. Uh, and at first they thought, oh, you know, the, the traditional uh, sensibility had been those air quality. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they started to interview the kids, they realized that 80, 90 plus percent of these kids had had trauma before the age three, That's right. who then developed asthma. And, and it's been a very interesting um, study and, a, and, a, and an interesting paradigm shift. And, and obviously that is across the board on on health issues is what uh, Right to Health is is working to I think both educate about and then to shift. One of the things that I've been really amazed with Leslie and Tina is their ability to connect with people all over the place. And, you know, Leslie was just at a peace conference a few weeks ago and she came back and said, oh, my gosh, I met this person and this person. person. We got to reach out to this and talk to this person like 15, 16 individuals, you know, and one. So it's heartening to know that. There's a lot of other people out there who express the same concern and the same desire to do this work. Um, but but again, you know, we, we really want to be more explicit in how we not only approach the community here in Portland, on the state of Oregon, nationally, but really have a process by which we can help others train their communities. Mm-hmm. And so that's another big piece of, of how we're looking at our, our, new, our newer strategy. Mm-hmm. And all of this, by the way, can be found on our, our website, righttohealthus.org. Um, and again, we can provide some other um, social media contacts as well. Christy LaFollette is the Director of Development and Marketing for Right to Health. Everything that, that, that you were saying and about there being different organizations and different people out there doing doing work and, and this seeming to uh, potentially be coming really to a head and to mainstream discussion seems to be a nice setup for one of the songs you brought in from Santana. Uh, do you want to tell us the name of the song and why you brought it in? Uh, yeah, I, I love this song because it's very motivational and it's upbeat. Uh, Santana is also a very universal attraction uh, for people because I think of his music in that way. But also it's a shout out to my kids. This used to be the song that I put on the stereo and crank up really loud when it's time to clean up. And I think that's what we need. We got to clean up. We, you know, we wrote a check with our constitution and it's bouncing for a lot of our people. It's bouncing and it's killing us literally. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons I love this song though, because we need to clean up. Let's get it going.
This is Phil Buskett, the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I am talking to uh, three women who are members who are who run Right to Health. And I want to finish this last section. I, I, it's hard to talk about health and health care without thinking about the national mood and dialogue. Um, I, I, I will say that in uh, what we've been talking about to this point makes me feel very optimistic. Uh, the work that you guys are doing is wonderful. It's your outreaching to individuals and increasingly to companies. You've talked about pushing on legislative changes. Um, that's all great work. However, it feels as if uh, from where we sat last summer, that the the tone and the level of optimism about healthcare finance and healthcare and racism uh and, and is is has changed mm -hmm. how is that impacting the work that you are all doing tina uh, as vice president of, of operations how are you seeing that play out in the programming that that right to health can and is doing i think for the non-white community we're fed up we're done and um i think that with the current political climate, people are despair from wanting change. But I think that the positive thing that's coming out of that is that people are angry. But this anger is going to change something, right? I mean, we're three moms. We're three moms with some kick-ass babies. And people are angry. And people will go out there and they're going to change it. I mean, by all means necessary. Malcolm X, right? I, it does, it is potentially Trump being shorthand for uh, some, some of the mood that's out there. Is Trump potentially a valuable catalyst towards, towards change in terms of it, it does bring up more of that anger. It does uh, define more directly some of the the racism and the hatred that's out there and that does give a, a certain urgency to it well am i looking too much for a silver lining here uh well i don't think there's a silver lining i'm sorry Fair enough. I, i'd love to to say that but i'm not one to really to take that role uh and i have to say i don't think that this is such a shock to people of color uh i think we've been hearing this kind of vitriol about Do uh, president obama for a very long time uh, I think that it was a huge abscess just kind of boiling below the surface. And when uh, number 45 was elected, it just ripped the Band-Aid off, a really nasty boil. And that which we were smelling as people of color the entire time now just permeates the room. It's just out there. Uh, so it's not a surprise to a great deal of us, I'm just saying. Um, on the other hand, it's about that pendulum swinging just far enough where people go, okay, that's it, far enough, you know, and I think that's what we're seeing now. On the other hand, it is a point at which people are fed up enough to make those changes. And I think that's what CDC should be doing and what will probably end up happening. It'll probably become the responsibility of right to health to have a sort of clearinghouse for all these people to have their action. Because I think that's the other piece that we know supremacy encourages, which is divide and conquer. So we have a lot of silos of people doing some marginalized work here, some healing work here from a psychological standpoint. 
uh, from a, a religious standpoint, economic standpoint. My point is, since it is so ubiquitous and it is a national problem, that is what CDC should be doing. So if they're not going to do it, I think Right to Health as a clearinghouse for all these actions and saying, oh, that's your problem? Well, here, somebody's doing this over here. They're closer to you. Why don't you hook up with them? Um, it initially started out as an idea of having mobile health units going out to different areas and doing cardiovascular risk reduction. Since we know racism is so associated with these chronic diseases, we can still do that. Uh, but I think it also includes now anti-racist training, adverse childhood events training, trauma-informed care in the specific pockets of the country, because we know this racism is a virus that has different expressions in different areas. We know that it looks much different in Tijuana, San Diego, than it is in Puerto Rico, New York City. So we know these have different expressions. My point is a national institution like CDC should be doing this work. If they're not going to, then people of color are going to rally around. And what we're saying is go to Right to Health, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and put your information in. So what we will do is create this national database where everyone will know. You can be marginalized in your home, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your state, but understand on a national level, we hear you. We get this. We got you. And here's how you can have yourself. Here's how you can empower your local areas and your national areas to push back and say, we're done with this. We know the truth and we're pushing back against it. And, and why, don't, why don't we end on, on the, that note of how people, you, um, Leslie, you pointed out some ways that people can find out more information about Right to Health. Um, what about if people would like to bring Right to Health to their company mm -hmm. uh, for training? Uh, that seems like a very immediate uh, uh, um, way to get engaged. Um, or what about if an individual, so if you can both address an, as an organization or an individual, how can people engage uh, with Right to Health? Um, a couple ways. So uh, again, going to our website, righttohealthus.org, um, there's a contact us email. <laughs> um, also directly, you can contact me, Christy. So it's K-R-I-S-T-Y at righttohealthus.org. And that's digit two, not T-O. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, three, for coming in the, to the studio. And also thank you for um, all the great work that you're doing. I think it's, mm -hmm. it can be sometimes very easy to be see an issue and be angry about it and to post things on Facebook and to uh, fume to your friends. But you guys are obviously doing much, much more than that. And, mm -hmm. and um, congratulations on, on all that work and for the inspiration of that. Uh, can I, I just say a couple other things? Please. One is when you fume to your friends and when you post angry face on Facebook and when you are triggered by these events, because I, it's coming, there will be more. Uh, when you see these traumatic events and the shootings of unarmed people, et cetera, please don't just post it. Post the petition. We actually have a petition to CDC to force them to admit it. And it's a moveon.org petition. We're asking people, post the petition as well. It's not enough to just sit there and re-trigger yourself. Do something. So post it as an action step. And I know a lot of people don't believe in petitions. They don't think they have any effect. That's not true. Uh, over 100,000 usually gets additional attention on a national basis. And believe me, if you're a person of color sitting around and you see a petition with 100,000 people saying racism is harming you, I think it's going to be a little encouraging, especially when you feel alone. So I think that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is funding. We live in a capitalist country. So you have the opportunity to donate through Amazon Smiles. 
if you just go to a shop on Amazon instead, Amazon Smiles will donate a portion of your purchase to nonprofits, and you can choose Right to Health. Um, I think the other piece, though, is for me to go out, open your eyes, speak to that person who looks a little different from you. If you go to church and you know your church is a completely white church, how about look around? Maybe there's a black church that would like to be your sister congregation or a golf team or a quilting bee or do something. Do you, but do it with an eye to unity. That is the one thing that our current administration does not want from anyone. Fight it as much as you may feel. You're in your little box and everyone else is different. Understand, blood's red. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. And once again, you have perfectly set up one of your song selections. Uh, Eric Clapton changed the world. Bam! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys for coming in. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much.
This show was made possible with the support of Shout House, a multi-use community arts and event space founded by Hand to Mouth Theater. Centrally located in Portland's Central Eastside Industrial District, Shout House features a 1,000-square-foot studio with sprung floors, state-of-the-art sound system, 24-hour access, and other amenities. Available for rehearsals, meetings, workshops, classes, photo shoots, parties, and private events with flexible rates to match your budget. For more information, go to shouthousepdx.com. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Molly Jean Bennett. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to molly at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. And have a great week.